Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Thank you for inviting Best Self into your home today, Mark. You know, our paths have crossed many times over the last couple of years, but I'm really excited and honored to be here today and have the opportunity to celebrate your incredible work in the world. Thank you. So before I get started, I think I want to um, give you a proper introduction to our or for our audience. Um, so you just bear with me here. Dr. Mark Hyman is a man on a mission with a desire to set the record straight about all things food, systems, policies, and its connection to the environment, economy, social justice, personal health, and helping us figure out what the heck we should be eating in order to live healthy, vibrant lives. Dr. Hyman is the director of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, chairman of the board of the Institute for Functional Medicine, and founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center. I mean, you are a slacker, Mark. Um, he is a 10-time number one New York Times bestselling author and an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in his field. His latest book, Food, is truly an ode to demystifying and debunking food myths discerning complex science and making sense of it all. Thank God. Thank God. So with no disrespect intended, I, I have to say this, this book is really good. And I, uh, not that I didn't expect you to write a good book, <laughs> but, to take but what I, what I was like, what I was really surprised was that I was going to be captivated by a book about food. Mm. And I love the way you laid it out. And it's, you know, it's, it's really practical. Um, you're not just like uh, pointing out the problems. You're really offering um, solutions and empowering people how to redefine their relationship to food and, and obviously their overall health. So I think the best place that I, that I would love to start with um, today is to really understand where this journey started for you. Mark Hyman decides to go to medical school, but how does he, how does that lead into functional medicine and, and where does Mark Hyman make the connections to understanding that food really is the key to, to health and wellness? It's a great question. It actually started before medical school uh, when I was in oh. college at Cornell and I moved into a house with a bunch of folks and one of them was a PhD student in nutrition at Cornell. And he was studying the role of fiber in gut flora, which I thought was pretty fascinating. And this was, you know, four decades ago. Right. And nobody knew we even had gut flora at that time. Yeah, no. <laughs> but that's what he was studying. And he gave me this book uh, that changed my life, which was called Nutrition Against Disease by a guy named Roger Williams, who was one of the fathers of the notion of biochemical individuality, how we're all different. And the notion that we can change disease, particularly chronic disease, by what we eat. And that book sort of set the framework in my mind of food as medicine. And at the same time, I also was studying systems theory and systems thinking and the connections between different healing systems and how the body works. Uh, and that sort of blended into this sort of predisposition to think differently about the body and health and healing. And I decided to go to medical school. I actually majored in Chinese, and I was going to go to China to study Chinese medicine, but I didn't want to spend my 20s in a fascist dictatorship. So I decided I'd apply to medical school to see if I got in, because I majored in Buddhism, which is a really revolutionary way of thinking about how our suffering and perceptions work. And I studied the Medicine Buddha, which was really all about how we, 
how we actually have to rethink our relationship to ourselves, our bodies, our health, our world. And with that, I went to medical school. And I got kind of brainwashed for the first bit. In a uh, good I, way. <laughs> I, I kind of decided to suspend all my previous thinking and just take in this system as whole and see what happens. And I became fascinated with the body from that perspective. It was amazing. I had a great time in medical school. I became a family doctor um, and was always focused on nutrition and health and wellness. But for myself, I was a yoga teacher before I was even a doctor. That was like 40 years ago when nobody was doing yoga. And they were, went to the yoga studio here in New York. It was one yoga studio, <laughs> an east-west right. uh, bookstore uh, right. with five people in the class. And now, you know, you're lucky if you can get a spot if you go an hour beforehand. <laughs> and... All that sort of led to a different way of thinking about things. And then what happened was I got really sick when I was about 36, about 22 years ago, and ended up having a complete collapse of all my systems from mercury poisoning when I lived in China. And that led me to have to figure out what was going on because no one could help me. No traditional doctors were helping me. And I had gut issues and cognitive issues and severe muscle pain and autoimmune diseases and all these things were happening. My whole systems collapsed. And, and through that process, I discovered this new model of thinking called functional medicine, which is a systems approach to disease, it's looking at root causes. It's really the science of creating health as opposed to just treating disease. It asks the question, why? Why is this occurring instead of what disease do I have? More, more in medicine, we're focused on what? What disease do I have? What drug do I give? Based on symptoms and geography, where is it in your body and where's the symptoms as opposed to New thinking, for example, about the microbiome that teaches us that, wow, your gut flora may cause depression and autism and cancer and heart disease and diabetes and obesity and on and on and on, which doesn't make any sense given our current framework of disease, right? You don't go to the rheumatologist and they go, well, how's your gut flora? Or you don't go to the cardiologist and go, well, what's, what's going on with your gut? You're having heart disease, right? But that's actually what the future of medicine is. And functional medicine is a way of shortening the gap from the science to the practice. Okay, so that's a lot to unpack, because first of all, I'm thinking of you as a college student and thinking, you know, number one, how lucky you were to have come in contact with this information so young in your life, right? So it sort of planted seeds that you just don't take no for an answer, you know, because I didn't know that you had this illness, but I can only imagine at that time that, you know, doctors tend to just like run you through the traditional gamut yeah. of tests, right? They wanted to give me antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication and sleep medication. This is really horrible pain medication. I'm like, no, no, there's something going on here. I'm not depressed. Right. I know so what's going how on. How fortunate that you had this sort of like yin yang, um, Eastern Western. You know, that you'd planted all these seeds mm. in your life. Yeah. You probably didn't really know what you were, were going to do with them mm -hmm. all, but like mm -hmm. they really kind of came together and culminated at this point when you yeah. needed them most. Yeah, through the retrospectoscope, you can see how everything connects <laughs> right. in your life. Hindsight's right? 2020, right? And it's it's not even hindsight. It's really about understanding the flow of your life and following in different doorways and actually seeing how they all connect looking back. And everything I did and learned actually set me up for rethinking the way things are and right. asking the right questions. And so this is really all about a rethinking of disease and health. And we know that the most powerful drug on the planet is food. Uh, we had a woman in one of our groups at Cleveland Clinic this week who had been on insulin for 20 years, a type 2 diabetic, and within three weeks she's completely off insulin and medications and her blood sugars are normal. That's the power of food. There's no drug that can do that. Right. This notion of food as medicine, we, you and I were speaking off camera about this before. 
you know, this is a discovery that I made in my own life, really only, you know, maybe five years ago. And I was never really truly understanding. I mean, I, I kind of pegged food, this is good, this is bad, but mm. never really understood the connection of food as medicine. And as you say, you know, the most, most powerful tool that we have is our fork. Yeah. What is it, Mark? Why, why are we not making these connections? Because it's, you know, and we've all been taught that food is energy, that it's calories, that you need it for sustenance to keep things going. But that aside from that, as long as you don't eat too much and as long as you exercise enough, then everything's fine. As long uh, as I'm thin, it's all, all is well, well yeah, right? right? And there are a lot of people who are thin are not healthy, right? right? So it's not right. necessarily equated to thinness. But the idea that um, food is actually more than calories, that it's not all about exercising more and eating less. It's about actually the quality of the food and what that does to your biology that matters. You say, well, a thousand calories of broccoli and a thousand calories of soda, they're the same because they have the same amount of energy. No, they're different because they have different effects on your biology. In a laboratory, when you burn them, they're the same in a vacuum. But we're not a vacuum. We're a living, breathing, dynamic organism. So when you eat different food, it has information, instructions, look like an operating system programming your biology with every bite. It doesn't happen over decades. It happens over minutes in right. terms of your gene expression, your hormones that get produced. If you eat sugar, your stress hormones go up, right? If you eat mm. fat, they go down. If you look at how it affects your immune system, it regulates inflammation or is anti-inflammatory or inflammatory depending on what you eat. Right. It affects your brain chemistry, whether you produce happy mood chemicals or depressed chemicals. It affects behavior and we know that violence can be a cause by the wrong kinds of foods. We know it also affects your gut microbiome with every bite. So literally, with every single bite of food, you are literally giving your body instructions of either creating disease or creating health right. in real time. And it's powerful. And it's simple. And it's simple. And you don't focus on what you eat. You don't have to worry about how much. Right. You know, how many people are going to eat 10 avocados? Nobody's going to do that. You could easily eat 10 cookies. <laughs> right? right. So that's the difference. I want to acknowledge what I think is so wonderful. Um, you work with individual patients. You work with organizations. You've worked with policymakers, influencers. You've collaborated with fellow leaders in the field. You've worked with, you know, uh, testifying before the White House Commission and the Senate. Uh, you've also consulted with the Surgeon General. You've advised world leaders, politicians, and celebrities. And you've even introduced the Enrich Act to Congress with our friend, Congressman Tim Ryan, mm -hmm. to fund the inclusion of nutrition into medical education. Yeah. That is such music to my ears. Um, uh, tell us for a minute, because I think this is a shocking statistic, how much nutritional education Western uh, medical studies has. Well, I would say relevant nutrition education, almost not. Less than 25% of medical schools have the recommended nutrition hours within their curriculum, according to the National Academy of Sciences recommendations. When you include the, the hours that are actually given, they're mostly about nutritional deficiency diseases, about managing people on you know feeding tubes. It's not about using food as medicine. I would say that is almost completely absent from medical education. Right. So... When you got sick, where were you in your career? Were you in med school or? No, I was, a, I had been working for a number of years. I was a family doctor working in a small Indian reservation in Idaho. 
And then I worked as an ER doc for a few years, and then I got a job at Canyon Ranch uh, in Lenox, where I was the medical director for this health resort. And it was about a half a year after that that I got really, really sick. And so how did you sort of like start navigating your way out of that? Well, I was really fortunate. I, I, I was a nutritionist at Canyon Ranch who introduced me to a guy named Jeffrey Bland who studied with Linus Pauling, the PhD mm -hmm. nutritional biochemist who in my view is one of the smartest and most prescient thinkers in medicine. The ideas that he introduced me 20 years ago are now becoming understood in medicine as relevant, which they hadn't been. So he sees the future by looking and scouring the literature and reading across disciplines. And so he presented a paradigm of medicine that was really different. And I said, oh, this guy's crazy or he's onto something. And if he's right, I owe it to myself and my patients to actually do something about it. So I started right. learning about it. I just started voraciously consuming research and learning and learning and studying. And I realized it was a different way of thinking about disease. And it was like learning a language. And finally, I kind of got it. And I started to try this with people and saw extraordinary results, things that I just could never, ever imagine possible as a traditionally trained doctor. You also mentioned in the book that you say that you've, you have 35 years of, of uh, nutritional... 40 now. Okay, 40. <laughs> I'm like, ah. Oh. So I went to right, 19, 1978. Yeah. I was uh, studying nutrition. You have a lot of nutritional education. But you state very clearly that the science is still confusing to you. And what we have to navigate through as general population. So, so if you don't understand it, how are we supposed to understand it? Well, I think it can be confusing because of the way the science is done. So you've yeah. got, you know, when I was in medical school, I thought science was this pure, unbiased field of we truth. We could trust. Right. right. And what I've learned is it's often Biased. very corrupt, <laughs> you know, depending on who funds it. Mary Nestle is a nutritionist at NYU is writing a book now talking about how the food industry corrupts nutritional science by funding studies that obfuscate the truth on purpose and then promote them and market them. Uh, that, you know, soda companies study obesity, they find there's no link between soda and obesity. If Dairy Council funds studies on dairy, it's nature's perfect food, where independent studies find the opposite. 99 so they, they cherry pick their, yeah. their science. 99% of studies on artificial sweeteners done by the food industry find they're safe. 99% of studies done by independent researchers find they're harmful. So that's the kind of stuff we're battling. Plus, it's design of studies. You have to look at how they were designed, what the population was, when it was done, whether it proves cause and effect what the basic science is. And that's really not part of the conversation for most. For example, meat is a great example. We've been told that meat is bad because we believe that meat contains saturated fat. Saturated fat's bad. Hence, we should not eat meat. Well, there was no proof of that. It was all based on some very poorly done studies that showed that saturated fat may be correlated with heart disease. Turns out not to be true. Mm -hmm. And when people were looked at who ate meat over long periods of time, hundreds of thousands of people through food questionnaires every year. The ones who ate meat seemed to have more disease. But it turns out when you look at the characteristics of the meat eaters, these were people who weren't concerned about their health because the media was meat's bad. So if you ate meat, you were like, ah, what the heck? These people smoke more, they drank more, they ate less fruits and veggies, they didn't take their vitamins, they didn't exercise, they drank more alcohol. Of course, they had more heart disease. Right? Whereas the people who didn't eat meat were the healthy users. So they were biased to actually be healthy because they exercised, ate well, they avoided meat, but it wasn't the meat that was the problem. 
So we get really confused by these kinds of studies and the average person doesn't have the scientific training to actually understand this. Even most doctors don't. They see these big studies and they see there's a correlation. They think it's a big deal. But if you actually look at these studies, nutrition are very hard to do. There's a lot of people in a, in a resort for 10 years and feed them one diet and then switch them to another diet and see what happens. That's never going to happen. Right. And then the point being, a study comes out and the, somebody in the general population has to say, oh, now I've got to like dig and find out who's behind this study. You know? yeah. It's, yeah. It is really complicated. And that's what it's going to tell you. When did it eating, when did food get so complicated? Yeah. We didn't really need doctors and nutritionists to tell us what to eat for most of our history of humanity. Right. Right. Uh, and now everybody's confused. And I think that's really why I wrote the book, because everybody's confused. Uh, the government tells us guidelines that don't match the science. The media is confusing us. The science itself is confusing. The food industry's got their finger in there. So it's, it's kind of a mess. But I really sifted through all that for people. You and really did. I, I have really to say. I sifted through it. And I, I adjust all the controversies because I know what they are because people ask me, right. what about this? What about that? Should I eat this? What about vegan? What about paleo? What about... Dairy. What about what about those? <laughs> so what, Mark? What are what? what how, how are you eating now? Do you have a specific? Are you a vegan yeah. or a vegetarian yeah. or? A... You know, you look at the data. You could you could believe anything, right? You could say, right. if you're a vegan, you say, well, if you eat meat, you're going to die. It's going to kill you. You know, eating an egg is like having four cigarettes, like some movies say that are out there that promote veganism. And if you listen to the paleo folks, if you eat. As a vegan, you're going to get sick and die and nutritionally deficient and protein deficient, and you're going to be sick. So they can't both be right, right? So what is, what is the truth that we know about nutrition? What can we distill that down to? What are the principles that are flexible, that can accommodate a wide variety of diets that aren't rigid, but that are based on good science? And so I was sitting on a panel once with a vegan cardiologist and a friend of mine who was a paleo doc, and they were fighting like cats and dogs. There you are. And I'm like, well, if you're paleo and you're vegan, I must be pegan. There you go. And I joked. And we don't need another diet. And I did it as a spoof. But it's not a diet. It's a set of principles. And there are things that almost everybody agrees on, including the paleo and vegan communities and everybody in between. Oh. Right? You know, because you have low Something fat, high fat, on. low carb. Right. And, and so I basically just synthesized the research into some 12 really simple principles that people can follow. One, we should eat foods that are low glycemic. This is a powerful driver of all chronic disease. That's sugar and starch. These are foods we're eating in pharmacologic doses, 152 pounds of sugar, 133 pounds of flour a year per person. That's average. And we know that causes diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia, depression, and much more. Nobody's going to disagree with that. Second, we should be eating foods that are mostly plants. So plant, we call it a plant-rich diet, not plant-based. So 75% of your plate should be non-starchy vegetables. Some fruits, not high amounts of fruits, because they can be high glycemic if you binge on tons of pineapple or grapes. And we should be eating a lot of good fats, avocados, olive oil, nuts and seeds. Nobody disagrees with that. Some people disagree on the saturated fat question. Uh, I think we can talk about that. Uh, the other thing is that we should be avoiding refined oils So and refined foods in all forms. I think nobody thinks we should be eating a diet that's rich in pesticides and herbicides and antibiotics and hormones and full of additives and chemicals and preservatives and dyes. Nobody thinks we should be doing that. We, we eat 3,000 food additives in our diet. We eat about three to five pounds per person per year wow. of food chemicals, food dyes, for example. And that's never been looked at as a cohesive issue. And it's a big problem. It's linked to all sorts of behavioral issues and cognitive issues. 
Uh, we should be eating a lot of nuts and seeds. Everybody agrees that those are beneficial and helpful. We should be eating foods that are, if they're animal products that are grown in a way that restores the soil, that preserves water, that doesn't treat the animals inhumanely. That's what we call Talk about that for a second, like the connection. The connection of, I think, I think sometimes people are disconnected from the fact that, like, what's on our fork affects our planet, yeah. not just our physical health. So I was sort of ambitious in this book to try to make a simple, practical set of tools that people mm -hmm. can use when they go to the grocery store in their kitchen. By the way, I think you need to do an app because I think it's so practical and so so well done that I would love to be able to pull it up on my phone. Well, if you if you go to foodthebook.com, okay. you can download the food roadmap, which okay. I synthesized the entire book into one simple page. Say that again page. so everybody knows. Foodthebook.com. Okay. You can download the food Roadmap, basically the, the food roadmap, which is basically a synthesis of the entire book of choose these and don't choose these. Right. So if you're going to eat meat, here's what you need to know. Don't eat this. Eat this. If you're going to have dairy, here's what you need to know. Don't eat this. Uh, eat this. Look for these labels. It was so helpful. I mean, even when it came to the meat, um, I loved the section about barbecuing yeah. and, you know, what to watch, what not to watch and, you know, how marinades are helpful, yeah. how garlic and, yeah. you know, rosemary and yeah. fusing yeah. with rosemary. I mean, <laughs> I thought there were, there were things in there were fantastic. So I yeah. thought it would be so great to be able to have that as a list. But I also, I also, in addition to trying to make it really practical, I tried to connect the dots for people to understand that what they're eating doesn't just a personal choice, that it affects the soil, it affects the, our water shortages globally, it affects right. climate change, it affects environmental degradation from nitrogen runoff into the rivers and streams and lakes that kills huge amounts of life and we have dead zones the size of New Jersey that it leads to educational challenges because kids are too sick to learn and then have you know achievement gaps where they end up having poor lives less successful less likely to go to college where we have more poverty and violence and social injustice because of how our food system targets the poor and minorities where we have uh, even national security issues because kids are too sick and fat to fight and 70% of recruits get rejected and in the South they're almost able to accept no military recruits because of the, the burden of disease in this population. And it affects the economy. You know, most of our economy is burdened by Medicare and Medicaid and by 2042, 100% of our entire federal budget will be Medicare Medicaid. Now it's a third of most states' budgets. It's the biggest driver of our federal deficit. And yet nobody's really talking about it. And it's because of the chronic disease that affects one in two Americans that's driving all of our, our economic Do you hear your crisis. cats? I hear my cats. <laughs> Yoda and Bodhi, they're very rambunctious. You know, in terms of making those connections that you're talking about, you know, from our fork to the planet, basically, I mean, meat is a really good example about just what you were just speaking about. I mean, it's so difficult to figure out what meat to eat, if it's okay, where do I get it, mm -hmm. what does it have in it, did mm -hmm. it have antibiotics that are now going to get passed to me. And so I appreciated how you broke down all the chapters and gave all these really tactical um, tips, you know, like for example, with the meat, uh, to be like, if, if you don't live near a farm, um, to be looking for this, the label, the, the AGF label, right? Yeah, American grass-fed, grass yeah. right? So can you just talk a little bit more about the meat? Yeah, I think, you know, we have been told that meat is a problem for the planet, it's a problem for our health. And there really are three issues when it comes to meat. And I, I 
you know, want to be 120. So I wanted to know, is it something I should be doing? And I don't want to take other people's opinions. So I literally pulled all the best research on me. It was a stack, you know, this high. And I locked myself in a hotel room for a week and I read it all. And I studied it and I compared it and I looked at the patterns. You geeked out. I totally geeked out. <laughs> and also looking at the other issues around environment and climate change and so forth. And I realized there are three issues. One is moral. I mean, if you're a Buddhist monk and I have Buddhist monks as clients, then no, you don't have to eat me. Then there's the environmental issue, which is a big issue. And factory farm animals are bad for the planet in so many ways. And I'll get into that in a minute. And third, health. And they're really three and they get conflated. The health issue, I think the, the data is pretty clear on this. There, there is really no long-term harmful effects of meat. And there's probably a lot of beneficial effects. The question is, what's the quality of the meat? Is it factory feedlot meat? Is it a factory farm chicken? Is it a factory farm fish? Those are not great for us. And for a lot of reasons. From health points of view, from environmental points of view. As far as the environmental issues go, I just want to pause there because people go, well, yes, meat is bad for the environment. And I would agree. I think the way we grow meat in the planet is harmful. 70% of the world's agricultural lands are used to grow food for animal production. 70% of our fresh water, which is only 5% of the world's water supply, is used to grow animals. This is a bad idea. Plus, plus the way we grow the food depletes the soil, which then leads to the inability of the soil to hold carbon. And carbon is, is important because if carbon is released in the environment, it causes climate change. And the soil is one of the biggest carbon sinks. The rainforest is, yes, but so is the soil. In fact, it may be even more important. And we till the soil, we erode the soil, we've lost over a billion acres to uh, erosion and desert. No more nutrients. No, and, and we grow in depleted soils. We also can't hold water. That's why we see droughts and we see runoff. I mean, we, in floods, right? We see droughts and floods because when the water hits these depleted soils, they can't hold the water mm -hmm. and they will run off and cause floods. Uh, and the way we use pesticides and herbicides that particularly the, the uh, nitrogen from industrial farming goes into the rivers and lakes and, and causes overgrowth of uh, algae, which then we want everything kills fast the oxygen. And yeah. So it's really, it's a bad system right. and it's causing an enormous environmental destruction. And when you look at the entire food system as a whole, uh, including food waste and all the components, it's the number one cause of climate change. So I agree, we should not be eating factory farm animals. But then the question is, what about meat? Well, if you look at the research on regenerative agriculture, it's really amazing. When you use animals to graze on lands, it can restore the soil. We had 60 million bison in this country 150 years ago. We killed them all to get rid of the Native Americans. And they produced tons and tons of topsoil, literally 20, 30 feet of topsoil in some areas in America. Now we've eroded that. But it's not the animals themselves, it's how we raise them. And we have 80 million cows. But if they were all on grasslands, which we, we can sustainably raise them on grasslands. We can raise them in ways that's better for us, better for the planet. It actually can help restore the soil. And estimates are that by doing this at scale, we can bring back carbon in the environment to a pre-industrial time, basically completely reverse climate change. So nobody really well, connects the dots on again, there. So, just, so yeah. people say, oh, we should eat less meat. Well, yes, the wrong meat, but the right meat, if we eat more of it and we actually change our agricultural model and we support that with subsidies instead of factory farming, we have an opportunity to really have a huge impact on our health and the health of the planet. Right. 
And again, it's making that connection to what's from where what's on my fork came from yeah. and how it got here. Because you also had shocking statistics in there that with these farm fed animals, with cattle, for example, that they were being fed and this was legal. Yeah, they yeah. were being fed candy. Yeah. In candy wrappers. Yes, they're, they're fed uh, stale candy. Stale candy. like They're fed ground-up animal parts. There's lovely. all kinds of junk yeah, that wow. they eat. And you know, you're not what you eat. You are what you right. are eating eight. Right. Right, which is exactly goes back into have they been force-fed with antibiotics and how that... Yeah, I mean, the antibiotic use in animal husbandry is a real problem because we're seeing you know tens of thousands of deaths a year from antibiotic-resistant bugs that are caused by factory farming. So let's also talk a little bit about how we're being led down a path, you know, because how fads, diet fads evolve and how everybody sort of like jumps on board with something. Um, you say in the book that the food industry has invited itself into our homes and encouraged us to outsource our food and cooking. And this has been the, a breakdown of so many things. You mm -hmm. think like the family dinner. Mm. Um, Huge. The actual the relationship to food, yeah. right? And, yeah. you know. I mean, this is actually fascinating because when you look at the history of how did this happen? How do we move from families cooking at home? I mean, in 1900, 2% of meals were eaten outside the home. Right. Now they're 50%. Think about of the meals. tradition that went along with that. Like, like you remember your grandmother's kitchen. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what you remember is, you know, the smells, the, the certain foods, mm -hmm. you know what you ate every Sunday, you know, for dinner. And then after um, World War II, there's the rise of the processed food industry. And uh, there was a movement at the same time to empower people to cook at home. They had federal extension workers that would go around to new families and teach the families how to cook and grow gardens and, and make real food. And there was a woman named Betty, who was a home ec teacher, who was very passionate about this and was very vocal about it. And the food industry got together and says, we can't have this. We have to figure out how to get our products out in the marketplace. So they decided to create this culture of convenience. So convenience became the prime value that we adhere to. And when that happens, we started sort of insinuating processed food into our products at home. Remember Betty Crocker? I, well, you, I loved it when you brought that up in the book. <laughs> so I, I had... We're aging ourselves saying we know mother, who Betty Crocker my is. My mother had the Betty Crocker cookbook. And there was, picture, there was a picture of Betty Crocker on the front of the cookbook. And I thought Betty Crocker was a real person. So did I. And turns out she was a fabrication of the food industry. So General Mills convened a group, which probably should be, you know, an antitrust thing now. Which is a, like, was a brilliant idea. To get them all colluding right. together mm -hmm. to actually create this culture of convenience. And then they started doing things like getting back Betty Crocker cookbook, which was... If you remember the recipes, they were add one cam of Campbell's cream of chicken soup or <laughs> to your casserole. add your Velveeta cheese yeah. or add your Ritz crackers to right. the whatever casserole. And so they then moved on to TV dinners and to more and more processed food and more fast food. And we end up you know, having this culture where Americans don't know how to cook anymore. We've literally, they've literally hijacked America's kitchens, our taste buds, our brain chemistry, our metabolism, and we need to take them back. And hijacked we know that by the convenience. Yeah, and the family dinner has been disrupted and the average family eats dinner 20 minutes, three times a week at most, each eating a different food from a different factory that's processed, packaged and put in a microwave. 
that is not a family dinner, all while they're watching TV or on their phones. Right. And that breakdown has led to the breakdown of, of many important things we see. We, we see kids having more trouble in school, more behavioral issues, more anorexia and bulimia, more obesity. These other things have been shown to relate to the breakdown of the family dinner. And right. it's when you inculcate your kids with values and you teach them about food and how to cook. I, I cook dinner every night, even though I was a busy doctor with my family. My son now, that's what he does for a living. He like goes around and does chefs and, and hosts these events and cooks for people and teaches them about food because he learned how to do it. Not because I taught him, right. but we just did it together as a family. Well, you also mentioned in the book that uh, aside from, you know, we should, we should have this return to real, right? Going, going, moving towards real food. We shouldn't be eating things that perhaps we didn't find in our grandmother's kitchens or our great grandma's kitchens, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, Michael Pollan has a great little book called 50 Food Rules. You know, one is like, if your grandmother re wouldn't recognize it as food, you shouldn't eat it, right? Yes. If, if it, turns, it has 37 ingredients, it's not a food. Right. It's yeah. like it's a food-like substance, right? Right. It's like if, if it, uh, the cereal turns your milk a different color, you probably don't want to eat it. Right. <laughs> you know? So I do want to roll into the conversation, though. People always say things like... Uh, yeah, that's great for them to say, but, you know, organic is really expensive. I don't have a Whole Foods mm -hmm. or I don't have a health food store or I don't have access to purchasing something online from, from yeah. a resource. So how do you speak to that? Well, it's a real problem. There are real areas of food insecurity and food deserts in America where there's, you know, 10 times as many fast food and convenience stores as there are grocery stores. But the research has shown that, you know, the average cost of, of actually eating well is about $1.50 a day more, which for some families is, can be a lot. It's an extra like, you know, $10 or so if you have a big family. But uh, we actually know how to eat well for less. And I think it's a hierarchy of priorities. No, you don't have everybody has to eat a grass-fed $70 ribeye steak, right? right. But and nobody has to have heirloom tomatoes. We can eat real food first. I think the first hurdle is getting off of junk, getting off of processed food, getting off of fast food, and eating real food. And boxes and cans and <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I had a real awakening uh, as when I was part of the movie Fed Up, where uh, we were doing a movie about the role of the food industry and in pushing sugar and low-fat foods and driving the obesity epidemic. And as part of the movie, I went to see this family in South Carolina, one of the poorest um, communities and uh, one of the worst food deserts in America. This family of five lived in a trailer. So just to define what a food desert is, just in case someone doesn't food know. food desert is essentially a place where it's really hard to find real food. You know, you can go get processed food in a convenience store in a bodega, but you're not going to find a lot of really healthy food. And um, they had 10 times as many convenience stores and fast food restaurants as grocery stores. And they lived on a budget because they were on food stamps and disability. The father was 42 on dialysis from kidney failure, wow. from diabetes. The mother was 100 plus pounds overweight. The son was 16 and almost diabetic, very overweight. And mm -hmm. uh, I went to their house. Instead of uh, you know kind of telling them, here, you should eat better, go home. I said, let's, let's make a meal together. So we went shopping, we got real food. I used a guide called Good Food on a Tight Budget, which is from the Environmental Working Group, where I'm on the board. And we um, we just made real food. It's one of the cheapest, healthiest grains and beans, one of the cheapest, healthiest nuts. So every area of real food, we go into what are the cheapest forms that are still good for you and good for the planet and good for your wallet. And I said, here's how we cook. They didn't, they didn't have anything in their house that was real. Everything they thought was healthy, 
because of the way they're marketed to. And I thought they knew, but they just didn't do it. They didn't know. They didn't know that their salad dressing was full of high fructose corn syrup and refined oils and gums that cause leaky gut. They didn't know that their Cool Whip was said zero trans fat on the label, but because of a loophole in the labeling laws, but it was all trans fat and all high fructose corn syrup. They didn't know their Jiffy peanut butter was full of trans fats and, and, uh, and high fructose corn syrup, for example. And they didn't know how to chop a vegetable. They didn't have cutting boards. They didn't have knives. They didn't know. And they're and not I, alone. No. And they, and this is a deliberate thing that the right. food industry has done is to s- subvert our food And we're system. not shaming them. It's not. Yeah, I know, am. It, well, <laughs> yeah, I you were helping them. You were, you, you were. No, no, I was, I was shaming the food right. industry. Yes. No, I was saying the family. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't shaming For them. not knowing. No, no, no. Know. I was like, they were just, it was really just understanding that. Wow, they really didn't know. And as soon as they heard what was in their food, and I showed them the ingredients, and I tried to I cover over a box and show them the label, said, can you tell me what this is? And they wouldn't be able to tell if it was a corn dog or a Pop-Tart right. based on the ingredients because they all look the same. Right. And so then um, we made this meal, and they loved it, and they thought it was delicious. And was I said, it turkey can, chili? Was turkey mean? chili. Yeah. I made a salad with real lettuce, not iceberg lettuce. Right. Just olive oil and vinegar, salt and pepper dressing. We chopped garlic. We chopped some onions. Um, made turkey chili. We made roasted sweet potatoes. We had to cut our sweet potato with a butter knife because they didn't have, <laughs> they didn't have actually a cutting knife. Right. And we roasted them with some herbs in the oven. Very simple, easy to make food. And, like, and I gave him this, they loved it. I gave him the guide. I gave him my, one of my cookbooks. I said, you can do this. And they did it. They lost a couple hundred pounds in the first year together. Wow. The sun, lost 50 and then gained it back because he went to work at Bojangles because there's nowhere to work as a teenager down there. Right. But he got himself together and he, he uh, lost 128 pounds. Wow. And is now going to medical school. And if they can do it, anybody can do it. See, that's the point. Now, that's obviously somebody that's living in a, in, um, in a food desert. In extreme um, poverty. In extreme poverty. And that is a reality. And organic food is expensive, but there are... You know, it starts here. It starts with planting these seeds. Yeah. And I go through in the book, what are the best sources of cheaper, healthy food? Like Thrive Market, for example, right. has awesome food at 20 to 50% off of right. prices you'd find at Whole Foods. Right. Uh, you can find out how to get even grass-fed meats at a great discount by cutting out the middleman and going right to the farmer. There's ways of getting cheaper ingredients from all sorts of resources. It's getting much better, right? Yeah. We still got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, we also think that we can trust things, like when we see American Heart Association on something and there's mm-hmm. like a check mark. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, I mean, the other thing that's made us confused is the subversion of public health organizations and advocacy groups by the food industry. So, for example, a large portion of the budget of the American Heart Association and the American Nutrition Dietetic Association and the American Diabetes Association, American Cancer Association come from the food industry. And so, uh, for example, if you look at certain products in the grocery store, they have the American Heart Heart Association seal of approval. And when you look at the foods that have it, for example, tricks, tricks are for kids, right? There's seven teaspoons of sugar per serving. There's so many different kinds of dye, red dye, blue dye, yellow dye, you eat it, you die. And it's <laughs> an unbelievable funny, thing Mark. that they can actually put that seal of approval right. on that food. And yet, if it has any fat in it, they say it's bad. They they have, for example, your, your yogurt is considered heart healthy, your low-fat yogurt. Right. When you look at the ingredients, the ounce per ounce, your low-fat sweetened, you know, fruit strawberry yogurt right. has more sugar per ounce than Coca-Cola. Right. And 
it's frightening. So we have to understand that our public health organizations have been subverted and are, are not actually telling us the truth. And on top of that, advocacy groups like Feeding America, which is a hunger group, have been co-opted by them. So they don't want to promote soda taxes, for example, or promote uh, food stamps not being used for soda. We have the NAACP and Hispanic Federation being funded by the soda industry, which is why they come out against the soda taxes, even though their communities are far more affected than any other communities in terms of their levels of obesity, diabetes, and their use of these products. So it really needs to be addressed, and we need to sort of protect these groups, and our government needs to step in and regulate these things so we don't have undue influence from industry shaping things. And also food marketing is, is targeted at these populations. I think um, when I was listening to you talk about that family and that journey that you, you embarked them on, um, going back to, to the, the cost, you know, that for them, you know, that was such a big factor, but it's like we also have to point out, like, what's the cost to your health? And how much does that medicine and the dialysis and all of that that you're, right. you know, long-term well, trickle-down. That's true. I mean, right, so that, you know, you pay now or pay later. Your cost of medications of being sick right. and off work and disability and the quality of life, those are externalities we don't include in our thinking. In our equation. And right. I think the other issue is that we don't include the true cost of the food in the price. So mm -hmm. what is the true cost of a can of Coke? Well, when you count how we grow the corn for the corn syrup and how it depletes the soils and contributes to climate change and degrades the environment, those costs aren't included. When you count the costs of how it affects chronic disease, disability, uh, in terms of how it affects productivity at the workplace, how it affects chronic disease, it affects Medicare, Medicaid, our overall economy, those aren't included in the price. I mean, why don't we make accounting uh, for sustainability that actually includes these externalities in the cost of the product? Then a can of Coke might be $10 or $20. I think it'd be about five fifty. So maybe yeah. you know, grass-fed steak would be a lot better deal. Right. Than, and then if we actually included the costs of the savings to health environment by eating different foods and put those as discounts on the healthy foods, we'd see a big shift. In fact, there are proposals in Congress to actually make, for example, food stamps more expensive to buy junk food. And by the way, the number one item on food stamps is soda. And if you look at junk food as a whole, it's probably tenfold as a category, more than any right. other category of food that's purchased with food stamps. If we actually make it more expensive to buy that stuff and less expensive to buy fruits and vegetables and whole foods, that would shift purchasing and, and make a big difference. Right. Well, I think also that beautiful story and your work is about planting seeds because the bottom line is when that family started to sit down and prepare a meal and started to see the results of how that made them feel yeah. emotionally, physically, spiritually, how they started to feel about themselves, how they started to go out and interact in the world. I think that that starts to empower people to demand more. Absolutely. Um, you know, and there's so much that we could go into here today and it's in the book and it's fascinating. You just put it all out on the table. You call everybody out, you know, on their bullshit, you yeah. know, on their, on, you know, demystifying the, the myths and, and the lobbyists. So it's all in there, but it's like at the end of the day, it's a very practical guide. So you right. can, you can get all into the minutia of the environment and the politics and the policies, but at the end of the day, it's really meant to be a practical tool. That's why I had so much fun reading it. It wasn't like reading a science textbook that was no. going to lose me and that I was going to, you know, maybe flip through and, and use as a resource. It's not about shaming. It's about empowering. It's okay. empowering us to re-navigate our relationship 
to our food and what we put on our fork and how that attaches to everything else. Absolutely. Um, so I mean, it's, and it's, you know, people feel powerless in this world, you know, powerless over politics, powerless over, you know, the economy, powerless over environment. And, but the truth is we are enormously powerful. And the thing that we do every day is we vote three times a day with our fork. Right. We vote for its impact on our health, on our planet, on the economy, on politics, on social justice, all these things matter. And, and we have enormous power. Imagine what would happen if everybody on the planet decided to not eat any processed food for a day. Everything would change. If you're telling me or I'm experiencing that changing my diet, changing my food, changing my relationship to my body and to my world is, is going to have a, a positive impact on, on these things, why... Wouldn't I try it? Yeah. What do I have well, to I, lose? You know, I have, I have <laughs> yeah. you know, I, you could listen to me all day talk and that would probably wouldn't change anything, but I, that's why I encourage people to do a 10 day reset. Is it in the book? It's a 10 day reset. Okay. Where you basically take out all the bad stuff, you put in the good stuff and you see what happens. Is coffee on that list? Coffee, you know, you could keep coffee, but generally I tell people to just get a break and see what happens. People right. use it for energy, but actually often people's energy is worse on coffee. Right. And it's better when they get off coffee. And so... What I encourage people to do is don't listen to me. Listen to your own body. Within 10 days, you'll see profound changes. You know, we saw a 62% reduction in all symptoms and all diseases in just 10 days, whether it's your migraines or joint pain or fatigue or irritable bowel or allergies or sinus issues. In 10 days, people see dramatic improvements. So you don't have to listen to me. Listen to your own body. So do you think people are unaware of the connections? Yeah, people or... do not connect the dots. Right. I see patients of all different walks of life and even the most educated, intelligent people don't connect what they're eating with how they feel. Right. And that's the only way to do it is to change your diet radically. You you can make incremental changes, but they often won't work, right? If you, let's say you're reacting to dairy and gluten, you just cut out dairy, you go, well, I still feel sick. Well, yeah, of course, because you're not getting rid of all the things. So you have to kind of do a, a radical reset and then you'll know and you don't have to listen to me. I love this book. I love your work. Um, I am really thankful for the opportunity to sit down with you today and have this conversation. And I really want to thank you for walking the walk and talking the talk um, on behalf of us all, because you're really cracking it open, planting seeds, sparking something that we can all take charge. Like you said, we can find our voices, find our power and become more healthy and vibrant. Mm. That's the goal. And I want to just um, leave one parting question for you. I'd like to know um, if you could close your eyes and wave your magic wand today, right here, right now, what would you change? What would your vision or your dream vision for, for the future be in regards to your work? Well, I think it's to empower people to sort of understand how the choice we make really matter and that if I were king for a day, I would probably do a sweeping set of policy changes where I'd create an intergovernmental food agency or food commission to look at these issues as an integrated global problem. And I would change the subsidies to support regenerative agriculture and remove them from industrial agriculture. I would change our dietary guidelines to match the science and, and not be corrupt and just, just confusing. I would end all food marketing to kids and, and of all junk food and any food that doesn't promote health. I would implement soda and junk food taxes, which have worked around the world. 
I would have um, a really radical different approach to f food labeling that makes it clear what people are eating. Like in many other countries, in Chile, they put warning labels like on cigarettes, on breakfast cereal for kids. In other countries, they have stoplight, which is green, this is good, red, this is bad, yellow, eat with caution, uh, and, and make it really clear and, and get money out of politics. You have my vote for, you know, king for the day. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mark. Of course. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.